Welcome to the podcast Imaginations and Cancellations. My name is Annie Nazari and in front of me is sitting Professor Dr. Frans Rudem Korsten, the person who wrote the book that this podcast is based on. Every episode we tackle a chapter of the book and try to understand the city through vectorizing sensibilities, which is the way that our feelings and senses are steered by how cities are presented. Each episode we'll have two cities as a case study so we can understand the topics even better. Last episode we talked about theaters and spectacles as media connecting self and world in the cities Amsterdam and Naples. This episode we will look into newspapers and radio as media connecting private and masses in the cities Chicago and Cairo. So today we will be talking about newspapers and radios, which are media that connect the private with the masses. And the way uh, in which they do that is that uh, you read or you listen uh, to them in, in private, privately. And because a lot of people are listening or reading the same newspaper or the same, uh, uh, same song, <laughs> um, they are connected together and they become a mass. And, well, this, this is the main way how, uh, how the private and the masses are connected by these media. There are different ways too, but this is the main one. Um, and this mass that is created is, um, it's being called Imagine a Community. Um, so there is this mass, this community, they never really met in person, but they're there and they're together. In Egypt, there was this singer called Um Kultum, and she touched the hearts of many. She sang, she represented hope, and the people loved her. And even after the revolution, after she got banned, they realized that she had to come back because she had such an impact, and she was actually connecting people together. She was making a mass. And this could also be seen during her funeral because when she died, nearly four million people came to her funeral. So she really made this imagined community come together uh, in real life. Now, Um Kultum connected the masses, but how did Cairo, which is where she was, mm-hmm. uh, how did Cairo as a city play a role in this connection of Um Kultum connecting the people? I think it's even more than Cairo, but Cairo as a, uh, as a paradigmatic example. Um, so as long as people are in their houses, they, they might listen to the radio. Every family enjoying, let's say, uh, her singing. And she had a program uh, that was on a specific... Uh, uh, at, at some point every uh, Thursday, I believe, uh, a week, so that people would gather to hear her sing. Now, as long as people stay in their houses, uh, they are enjoying the singing privately, although on a massive scale. But that, of course, changes as soon as she would start to sing something that would have been of political relevance. She didn't. But Nasser, president of Egypt at the time, at some point smartly uh, started to give his speeches close to when Um Kultum would be singing. Precisely he wanted, because he wanted to, to reach the people in their houses as a mass, which is to say a political mass. So... Um, the masses start to start to speak politically, start to become important politically as soon as they come out of their houses uh, and get out on the street. So if four million people get to the street to say farewell to a singer, that's something. But suppose they would get to the streets to say, away with Nasser, or we want change. 
then there is a political force that comes to life in that enormous body of the masses. So I think uh, in terms of, of politics, let's say, the organization of the masses is related to the capacity of Umkultum to reach the masses. But I think, and that's not in, in the chapter, it could also be, it's, that's a separate field at the moment, and we're going to talk about it also a little later, um, about soundscapes, so that you would uh, reconstruct a city's soundscape. And then I think if you would go to Cairo of the time that Umkultum lived, you would have, let's say, her voice, not just in houses, but also in public spaces, uh, perhaps even people carrying a transistor radio. So she would become part of the soundscape of a city, which is, let's say, uh, defining the, the perceived space, as Lefebvre would call it, the, the, the space in which people, uh, let's say, experience their environment. So she really influenced like the, the soundscape, but also the environment, yeah. and the, oh, maybe also how people position positions themselves. Like there's some kind of hope going on and they like okay every Wednesday yeah she will be there anyways that's true so in in the Netherlands you had the same thing uh, with the radio uh, having programs that f for which people came together uh, that's something that's of course so unrelated to uh, what we have nowadays because let's say our mobile phones are first of all extremely privatized in a sense they're all our own and people don't come together anymore to to listen together to yeah. to a, a, a performance. So in a sense, she also shaped uh, senses of belonging, of of feeling at home, of people getting together, even it was if it was in their private homes. So yeah. yes, very important. Yeah, very hard to do nowadays with Netflix. You can right. uh, no. like <laughs> no. do whatever no. you yeah. want. Yeah. Another thing to do with the radio and with the masses, and that what politicians quickly came to realize is that you can easily manipulate the masses. Mm -hmm. And, well, that was also done very freely. And um, that was uh, doable because the radio was like this big thing that was financed by the government too? So Partly, right? so, so let's say you had state radios, yes, but for instance in the United States you would have, let's say, corporations, uh, but they were by and large closely connected to, let's say, policies or administrators, what have you. So they were like part of institutions, some kind of like big Yeah, in, in so let's say one thing in which they were clearly connected to, to governments and, and regulation is that they had, let's say, their own wavelength, right? So they had to have the right to use a certain wavelength. Uh, and then in that sense, they had to be legal. Okay, so the legalizing part yeah, is more... Yeah. Um, there's this other thing uh, opposed to that legal part, which is the radio pirating. So like unofficial radios mm -hmm. uh, broadcast their news or songs or their perspectives. And um, it's a bit different than like the normal radios. Yeah, sure. So the question is to what extent do these radio pirates have the ability to manipulate the masses? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're frowned upon too. Yeah, frowned upon by I think at the time, let's say for instance in the Netherlands you would have Radio Veronica or uh, Radio Nordsee, which was my favorite at the time. Um, so politicians wouldn't like it. Uh, these were pirates sending from boats outside of uh, territorial waters. I think um, 
the pirates were were the beginning of or part of a flexibilization of markets. So in a sense, I think they were ahead of their times if we say that uh, the neoliberal organization, reorganization of economies starts in the 80s somehow. Then the pirates in the 60s, 70s were a prefiguration of that in a sense that they claimed their own wavelength, uh, not caring about the legality of what they were doing, private, privately owned, um, and trying to reach not so much the masses, but a consumer populace that would be, let's say, that would consist in different different groups of people. Uh, so in, in the case of, let's say, Veronica or Nordsee, they were extremely important in propelling uh, pop culture. So that was, by and large, uh, missed by the, the regular uh, broadcast corporations. So they, they, they instigated a certain culture, a pop culture, um, that was closely connected to uh, a consumer society in which the masses did not disappear but were somehow dissolved in all sorts of different groups, brands, forms of defining your individual identity and so forth. So I think the the private the, the pirate radio was was a prefiguration of the of the opening up of the markets for loads of private uh, uh, corporations actors that all had their own niche in a big consumer society um, and uh, in a sense this is proven because later they became legal and they opened up the the multiplication of the channels so when I was a child we had two television channels black and white, and then, of course, let's say a few radio channels, and then with Radio Veronica and Nordsee, this started to kind of multiply, and it has been multiplying almost uh, limitless since then. But also keep in mind that this was the 60s. Yeah. Like 60s, 70s, people were experimenting yeah. and uh, trying to come up with things that were not part of the establishment. True, yeah. So... Um, and also the, the youth was very fond of this pop culture, yeah. so they were reaching yeah. that immediately. Yeah. So the interesting thing about cities is that they provoke another kind of society. Mm -hmm. um, if you look, Tunis, the philosopher? Sociologist. Sociologist <laughs> said uh, in a village or like another type of community, there's a Gemeinschaft, mm -hmm. uh, a community where Social relations are far more different. Everyone knows each other. It's a more kinship mm -hmm. uh, community. And in the Gesellschaft, there's a society where there's more, um, well, indifference. You come, you go to a foreign land. Nobody necessarily knows each other that well. It's based on as associations and allies rather than kinship. And... Um, we go from a village to a city there the thing that really um that really stands out is the indifference and um the private spheres become even more private than they were before because you really have your own bubble mm -hmm. and it's very hard to to uh, make that public so in a city let's say chicago uh, how do newspapers influence or radios influence this Gemeinschaft, Gesellschaft, society, community, relation? Depends a bit on where we are in time. So, um, Tennis made this uh, distinction in the 19th century, end of the 19th century, where uh, in Europe we had this 
massive flows of migration of people moving from rural areas to urban areas. If you see what's been happening in China for the last four or five decades or so, you see the same thing. So in China at the moment, it's the, it's the biggest migration in human history that we know of within one, and, and that within one country. But it's the same dynamic of, of people from rural areas moving to cities. In, let's say, uh, Tunisia time and when radio came to be important, they would by and large serve, let's say, more the urban uh, populaces. But at the same time, the possibility of radio was to reach people in their rural communities, as a result of which they could be taken up in this new feeling of a nation state or what have you. I think here as well, since the 60s, 70s, you see an enormous um, let's say, fragmentation of the field. And at the moment, I was just talking to uh, one of my colleagues who is from a very small rural area in the Netherlands, and he was talking about how they listen to the, the, the radio of that region. That's the only thing they really listen to. Uh, so not national radio anymore, but let's say the radio that's focused on what's happening in our region. So I think nowadays you could say that due to the fragmentation of the entire uh, broadcast field, you have way more, let's say, influence of rural rurally based uh, broadcast corporations, broadcast uh, channels, then, then, let's say, in the time of, of modernism, where you would have a few channels reaching out, and as, as a result, reaching out on a, on a national scale, and as a result, being able to mobilize people on a national scale. Nowadays, I think it's way more dispersed or way more fragmented. fragmented. And then, uh, in a sense, the, 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 the rural identity that Tunis saw disappear has reappeared, but not in the same way as when Tunis was looking at it, because these were more, more or less closed communities. And now the community, of course, also as it is felt or, or let's say, sensed, is part of that bigger dynamic. So now I would say these, these uh, rural-oriented broadcast channels are more aimed at giving people some sort of sense of home, uh, whereas everyone knows that we're taken up in something that's much bigger than that. You could say that there is like a, um, a big uh, Gesellschaft, mm -hmm. a society, and then within this society there are little Gemeinschaft, little communities. Yep. Yeah. So, yes, that's it. That's one thing. And the other thing is that that I think what you see, let's say, populists do with their um, fascination for the nation, not mm -hmm. so much the state, but the nation, what they try to do is is project actually the small-scale dynamic of a community on that massive scale of the nation. So what they play with, in a sense, are desires for community, for belonging together, for knowing everyone. And if you don't know anyone, everyone, then you could still say, yes, but he or she speaks the same language or, 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 or behaves in the same way. Really thriving on social cohesion. Yeah, right. Which, in a sense, is a logic that is the opposite of what a society is. So, in a sense, they cannot deal with diversity or with, let's say, people with different interests. So, this is why I call it the projection of Gemeinschaft on Gesellschaft. That's what, what they try to do, which is why I think it has to fail, or which is why I think, by implication, it will have to be a violent effort because yeah. you have to kind of uh, dismantle the diversity of people. That can't be heterogeneous anymore. Yeah, no. So moving away from the Gemeinschaft, the Gesellschaft, uh, relation and theory. Um, another thing that fascinated me, which has not so much to do with this, is um, 
in this chapter was Batman because I thought it was first I thought it was pretty out of the blue mm-hmm. but then I started to think about it and it really is something that fits Chicago and newspapers and that whole um, entourage mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Chicago has a lot of uh, interesting buildings architecturally it has romantic buildings in the sense they have neo-gothic uh, style right and uh, also bits realism but that has more to do with the newspapers um, and the figure of Batman I mean it has been uh, there has been so many adaptations and interpretations of this figure mm-hmm. that I thought it was just very interesting to unpack this so what I said already like Chicago is like all these buildings and architecture but since Batman originated from Chicago how does Batman embody all these different styles and time periods, not just limited to the romanticism or realism, I suppose. Batman is a fascinating figure uh, because I think he is capable of carrying, so to speak, different styles and different periods, just like you said. So, in a sense, the figure of the Batman as as a bat is, or as a as an in between between a human figure and an animal, right? It's it's like werewolf like, but then a bat. That's clearly romantic. That's a, that's a romanticist notion, right? So the, the fascination with ghosts, with in-betweens between animal and human beings, the fantastic. Then, uh, in terms of what the, the story uh, uh, thematizes, that's the modernist city or the industrialized modernist city. So so Gotham is made. It's, it's, it's made on, on that big scale with, with all the advantages of technology and then let's say almost utopian it turns into a dystopia right that's that's also a very common modernist theme um and in that sense you could read uh, batman as as an icon of modernism but then especially when we start to talk about let's say uh, cinematographic adaptations and interpretation he becomes a postmodern figure uh, also because postmodernism is much fascinated by some of the romantic notions of, of fantasy, of the, the blurring uh, of borders. But I think in the, in the last versions of Batman, uh, one of the issues has become, what, what is he actually? Um, in terms of almost a reflection on, let's say, the Batman as a human that can change into something else, but as a result, we also have to start to wonder, so, so what's the city in which he acts? Hasn't that in the same way been reconfiguring itself? Is that city still human or has it become dehumanized? And then we have, in a sense, an animal-like figure, figure who claims to be the defendant of a society that should be human again. That's, one of the, the, of this, that's the, the, the eternal irony of, of Batman. But it's... it's uh, a figure that, unlike many other figures, so I, I only knew a fair, let's say a, a few comparable characters that can be so uh, adaptable to the different styles and the different periods in which time and again that figure is reconfigured and has a new role to play. Uh, so perhaps Dracula, but but Dracula more or less. Oh, so with Dracula, you could have, let's say, a similar kind of adaptation to the styles of the period, but not much more. So Batman is uh, a fascinating topic, also in relation to 
urban environments, because time and again in the adaptations and interpretations, it's a slightly different Gotham. It never loses its neo-Gothic qualities, I think, but the neo-Gothic points back in time and points forward in time, in a sense that it's, it's also related to this postmodern fascination with, yeah, with romanticism. Every, everything goes. That's po- postmodernism, right? That's, you can basically smash everything together. <laughs> yeah, if we have, we've just had a discussion today in class where I said, no, I don't think about it as any, anything goes because postmodernism is much fascinated by, let's say, the force of representation. And then it's less a matter of anything goes and more a matter of what's the, what is the force in representation? What is being represented? Why? By whom? Uh, how does that project, let's say, an illusion or a reality? So it's more about, let's say, a struggle for representation, a struggle about representation, that in Batman's case also relates uh, in terms of themes to the force and the power of newspapers. And, and exactly then in how newspapers represent, for instance, the Batman. Yeah, that's and whether he's considered as a villain or as a hero, that's a, that's a kind of constantly, constant to and fro. So in a sense, the movie also thematizes the force of media as a power that can not just influence, but make realities. Yeah, that's also also like really in the last movie <laughs> of the Batman, news and media is very very highlighted and how r- representation and um, use of words, uh, camera angles can influence how you look at things and how how Batman is looked at. Is he like, uh, do people think he's like a good person or are there people opposed to right. him? Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that one yet, should I? Definitely. It's. I think it's a very interesting take on the the batman as a figure and the city but also like media and the news okay. and uh the masses too I'll, I'll, I'll check it out then good uh, good decision this concludes this episode next episode we will talk about television and cinema as media connecting reality and illusions in the cities bangkok and beijing Thank you for listening and keep imagining.